You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. In a world where specialization for the last generation has been a theme, finding somebody that has a built experience in multiple businesses or multiple sectors of finance, this is very valuable. I speak today with Todd Harrison, and Todd is one such gentleman. He began his career in 91 at the derivative desk at Morgan Stanley, where he taught himself the derivatives business, and where he was promoted to vice president at the age of 26, which at the time was the youngest in the firm. In 1997, Todd then left Morgan Stanley to join the Galleon Group as the managing director of derivatives. During his tenure there, the fund grew from $500 million to $6 billion when he was then told that he didn't have what it take to make partner, an exchange that triggered one of the best decisions in his career. Todd left Galleon Group and then joined Kramer Berkowitz, which was then a $400 million long short hedge fund as partner and head of trading in January 2000, where he turned the trading operation from an execution-only platform into a proprietary revenue generator. He managed 200 odd positions through the tech bubble and burst and had sole responsibility for a hundred million dollars in commission structure. In 2000, the firm generated 37% after fees for its investors. Then in July 2000, Jim Cramer asked Todd to write a trading diary for thestreet.com where he began his writing career. In 2002, Todd then founded Minionville Media, which was an online financial media company with a mission to effect positive change through financial understanding. In 2002, Todd created and became president of the Ruby Peck Foundation for Children's Education, a non-profit organization committed to the pursuit of knowledge and the belief that a child's opportunity to learn and develop the gift of his or her imagination shouldn't be limited by economic classifications social status, physical challenge, or any geographical boundaries. Todd has lectured at academic institutions, including Harvard University, Syracuse University, New York University, Hofstra University, and the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Todd has appeared on Fox, CNBC, CNN, Bloomberg TV, The Wall Street Journal, a host of other financial publications. And he's also written a fascinating book called The Other Side of Wall Street. In business, it pays to be an animal, and life it pays to be yourself. And that was published in 2011. I have had multiple conversations with Todd over the last few weeks, and I recorded one of them for your benefit. I hope you enjoy. Todd, you've got this vast experience. Your background was within the <coughs> derivative space. It's very difficult to trade derivatives without even understanding what the underlying uh, asset classes are, whether it be commodities, whether it be equities, bonds, fixed debt, you know, whatever. So when I speak with derivative traders, they tend to have a very different view around uh, asset classes, capital movements, and things like that. And what I found really interesting with a number of other guys, and, and you fit into this bracket, is that you've, you've done that, and then you've moved on and you've also done a number of other uh, sort of investment, not asset classes, but longer, longer term stuff. What you built with Minionville clearly wasn't derivative focused. A lot of your audience, depending on the product, was actually very much retail. It was very much a man in the street who was probably not going to be interested in buying futures or um, asset swaps or anything like that. 
So you've almost certainly got a, a very different and quite well-rounded view on asset classes and how they all interact within the global economy. So I'm quite keen to get your thoughts on, first and foremost, what this all means with respect to the central bank policy that we have today, how that is affecting markets in, in your opinion, and any other thoughts that you've got um, on that. And then we can also sort of move into the geopolitical, if you will. There was, there was an article that you wrote uh, back in 2011, which I thought was a um, fantastic article, and you discussed some of the ramifications, if you will, that can come out of the GFC and how that can affect things like war. So, you know, here we are, 2016, and many of the things that you wrote about, you, you know, at the time, people might have scratched their head and thought, this guy's a little bit of a kook. Um, and you look at them now, and it's like, <laughs> quite prescient. Well, contextually, if we want to take a step back and look at the markets as a whole and the world as a whole, I almost would look at it as a tale of two tapes with really 2008 serving as a tipping point. And as I, I think what you're referring to in the article I wrote uh, spoke specifically to the central bank policy and their, their actions uh, and their unprecedented actions. Far be it for me to talk about uh, what, would hap- what would have happened uh, if they did not act as, if, as they did, uh, but I would venture to guess that there would be a fair amount of debt destruction, much like a forest fire. It would be painful, it would be scary, uh, and ultimately there'd be a fertile rebirthing that has a fundamental backdrop and has you know, a more substantive base to it. I think what the central banks did, or our central bank, the Federal Reserve did, if I had to sum it up in a catchphrase, uh, they bought the cancer and they sold the car crash. So they ingested a lot of the toxic debt that was on private uh, institutional balance sheets and assumed them into the public sphere, which allowed the banks, uh, most of all, but really any company with a finance arm to recapitalize their balance sheet. And I want to say any, any company with a finance arm, that's a pretty wide berth. Everything from General Motors to Target was, was caught up in this tsunami. So the, the Federal Reserve did, I guess, what they thought was best. And it may have been for the best at the time. But I think there are many un, unintended consequences that have manifested uh, since then that we wrote about at the time. And specifically, you know, this whole notion of societal acrimony, social unrest, and geopolitical conflict. Not something one wishes for, especially if you have children and if you try to look at the world with a glass half full point of view. Glass half full, I suppose, is asset prices with interest rates where they are. If you held on, good for you. I think the markets uh, shook a lot of people out and, and, and made a lasting impression on our generation, much like the Great Depression made on my grandparents' generation. But the difference being, we weren't, we were giving drugs to mask the symptoms, but not medicine to cure the disease. And I think that that's still playing out. And where it goes from here, it's hard to tell. Uh, the markets near term to me feel very coiled, but they could just as easily go up, blow off to the upside uh, into year end with all the performance anxiety or the weight of the world, so to speak, can catch up to the markets. And, and if that calls into question the credibility of central banks and, and the faith of central banks, then, then we, you know, we're going to have a, a comeuppance of sorts. So on a domestic basis, do you feel that, um, what are your thoughts on the U.S. equity markets? It's just sort of taking out of the equation for a moment, Europe, Japan, any of these other uh, destinations. 
Well, I don't think you can take that out of the equation for a simple reason. I, you know, I remember back in 1999, I'm an old man now, markets rallied on the no, whole notion of globalization. And I think we were well on our way. I think what, you know, what we've seen from central banks has really uh, moved the needle back towards isolationism and protectionism, particularly if Mr. Trump gets to the White House. It's, uh, that's another can of worms. But you know, the equity markets to me feel coiled. And it's really, unfortunately, a lot of the metrics that I think once were used to judge the, the worthiness of a market. I always looked at the market through four distinct lenses. They were the fundamentals, the technicals, the structural, and the psychology, uh, with psychology really being the most important, right? But that's all evolved. And, and as I wrote about in 2008, uh, and still going on, that's turned into a giant game of chicken with central banks on one side and and the cumulative imbalances on the other side. So I have a high degree of confidence that it's not going to end well, but I have no confidence in where the markets go between here and there. Only because the forecasting mechanisms that I have traditionally used have really been rendered, I would say, not obsolete, but they've certainly less importance. And you know, and one of the things, uh, circling back to 2008, I think was really brilliant by the Obama administration. And I don't think anybody really has, has put their mind to this. But if you recall, fi the financial banks and, and the financial firms were really under the gun. If you remember uh, Viratrol, the nastiness that everybody hated the banks. But what happened was policy that allowed the banks to get out from under the hammer and ultimately recapitalize themselves. The brilliance of that, I think, if you remember Obama came into office, this was eight years ago, talked about healthcare, healthcare, healthcare in the middle of a financial crisis. I think, you know, in hindsight, and, and maybe, I think maybe the reason they did that uh, certainly was that if they tried to put their boot down on the neck of banks, the market would have crashed. Uh, the banks weren't strong enough to withstand you know, any further political pressure. So what happened was he focused on healthcare, the markets recapitalized. Uh, and now I think you're seeing that war on capitalism continue both in Europe uh, and domestically. Speculators uh, are an acceptable casualty of war in the eyes of, of the federal government uh, with a constitu constituency that really isn't here to speculate as much as live their lives with the markets serving as a funding mechanism uh, on a longer term basis. I'm not sure if, how much sense that makes, but it's clear in my head that this is an ongoing phase. You're seeing it with Angela Merkel. You're seeing it right across the board. Any, any hint of speculation, ironically, being quelled as the Federal Reserve and other central banks with the policy being exported to the Bank of Japan and the European Central Bank, it's all been cumulative in nature. And I don't know how that ends. I don't think it ends well, but I don't know when it ends. You know, it's kind of ironic in that the actions by the central banks essentially have caused speculation mm -hmm. because if you're acting with the market. You know, you made a comment and it's, a, it's an incredibly valid comment a few minutes ago. And you said that some of the metrics that you traditionally used essentially have sort of broken down and they were not functioning as they would typically have functioned. So they're not as useful today as they might've been in the past. And that is because of the, the incentives and the manipulation on the central bank side of things that have distorted markets where they don't function as free markets anymore. And so what that means for an, for an investor is that you cannot invest on a traditional basis. You just, you can't because those, those metrics don't function anymore. So you sort of, you're flying blind to a certain extent. And then what that leads to is exactly speculation. But from a political standpoint, it makes every sense for a politician to be able to hold up speculators um, and put fire to their feet because 
they're always going to be the minority. So it's quite easy to attack them. And well, you're kicking the can down the road effectively. It's, it's lowering the standard of living for our children. And that, that's sort of what pissed me off about the whole thing. You know, and you try not to be emotional about markets, but it, it seems to me that you know, my children and my grandchildren aren't going to be afforded the same opportunities that I had or my parents had because of this mountain of debt this gov- that our government, that the U.S. government has assumed. Now, ultimately, you know, this plays out in several ways. There's only so many ways that you can release pressure from the uh, machination, currencies, interest rates, and ultimately equities and commodities affected as a byproduct of that. But I don't think that negative interest, I think negative interest rates may be the last bullet and the last bullet tends to be pointed inward. But I don't, I don't understand how negative interest rates, uh, I mean, I understand how, you know, why they're, they're looking in that direction, but I don't understand what type of depth that will have because at a certain point, investors will just arbitrage the negative interest rates and keep the money in their home, which will inevitably lead to higher crime and, and more, you know, quote unquote, societal acrimony. There's a lot of venom out there. You know, I, you almost want to keep your head down. It becomes a liability to have an opinion in this market, especially in the digital age. And the velocity of information is outstripping the velocity of money. Right, so therein lies an interesting arbitrage and something that I think is uh, not necessarily a good thing, uh, and not evil in and of itself, but certainly something to pay attention to. Uh, I remember back in the in two thousand and eight, you know, when Hank Paulson was on bended knee, you know, I wrote that the problem here is that policy takes time and the markets move in real time, and that continues to be the case. But I would say that that dynamic has been leveraged a hundred x from where it was, and I'm picking that number. It's been magnified greatly by the innovation, I guess you can call it, in, finance, in trading and the high frequency trading and the algorithms that are, that are really pushing the market around. It's become a machine learning type of environment. You know, if you've been in the market for seven years or less, this is great, right? The markets go up, stocks go up, you're always bailed out, somebody buys the dip and, you know, life goes on. My fear, or at least my concern about the markets is that when they flip and the algor- algos start to work to the downside and the Federal Reserve runs out of bullets, you know, there's a lot of air between, you know, where we were in 2008, S&P 666, and as I stand, S&P 2170 right now. So it's, you know, the markets have tripled, you know, so as a, you know, just to, you say, well, you know, what's your view on equities? And my view on equities is, you know, look for alpha, but understand that the market's up 300% in the last eight years. And that's not really sustainable <laughs> or natural for that matter. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've been looking at, Todd, is price to sales. Because if you look at the price to earnings, it doesn't actually tell you the picture because what's been taking place at the corporate level, due to these extremely low interest rates, is management has said, you know what, guys, we just need to take on debt. It's the cheapest if it's ever been. Let's take on debt and let's buy back stock, right? And so that pushes the price multiple higher, but it doesn't change earnings. And then these guys liquidate their options that they've got and they walk away with fantastic packages. So it's making management very wealthy. So the, the valuations of companies are a, are, are a function of cheap interest rates. The most cheap interest rates are being utilized in order to buy back stock, which, and we talked about this on a societal basis, it's making that 1% wealthier. So the wealth gap has increased. Certain people that are, that are becoming wealthy on the back of these lower interest rates, but earnings are not any higher. And so if you look at price to sales ratios, we're not doing very well. So we in the US is not doing very well. So 
you know, the, it's, it's interesting how the financial market is so intertwined with the political and the, and the societal breakdown that we're seeing. To your point, there's a big difference between a stock market rally and an economic recovery. And anybody other than that top 1% or top 1% of that top 1%, you know, will tell you that, the, that they don't really feel like we're sitting in all-time highs. In large part due to corporate buybacks and other financial, I don't want to say trickery, but certainly financial maneuvering. And ultimately, this is going to take us so far. I think that what, what the Federal Reserve and other central banks by extension have tried to do is buy time, hopes that a legitimate economic recovery follows suit. I don't see it. Unfortunately, you know, actually, you know, I'm actually long, net long right now uh, with my exposure, but not so much that, that I'm putting myself at risk. You, know, you got to pay to play while the money's, while the music's playing, excuse me. But, you know, when it gets too easy and it looks like it's, it's too easy, usually is a sign that it's going to be a gut check. So Todd, how do, you, how do you go about constructing a portfolio in this environment? Well, really on the basis of the value of, of the underlying assets themselves, you know, I don't necessarily feel mandated to be invested. I think cash is is a position. And if you really want to hedge that, I suppose gold, although I've always, I've never really, I, I see both sides with gold. You know, in one hand, it's a store of value. On the other hand, it's a rock, right? And rocks fall during deflationary times. It's perception versus reality. So I, I sort of steered clear from gold, tra- have traded it certainly, but I have no long-term position, and which may or may not be right. You know, if the markets do enter this blow-off phase to the upside, and that's a huge if, you know, you want to be in equities, you want to be in, in gold. But again, you know, the field position of 300% isn't, you know, we're not at the starting gate, put it that way. So, you know, when you say, what do you, how do I construct my portfolio? Unique to me is the answer. Everybody has a unique uh, time horizon and, and risk profile, but I look at I try to look at the va- at the relative value of underlying assets, and if I don't see a relative value or I don't understand the story, you know, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna risk capital. And do you? What's your sort of time horizon? Are you looking at kind of deep value and then trading around positions, or are you taking a shorter term view and saying, look, we we know that these markets are relatively overvalued. So it's more of a bit of a stock picking environment, making sure that we're getting into equities that have that fundamental value, but essentially shortening <clears throat> shortening the duration of your investment time frame. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a renter, not a buyer, so to speak, in stocks, but that's hurt me. You know, if I can be candid over the, you know, any, any sort of risk management protocol over the last seven years has been a drag on performance. You know, so the inclination for a lot of people, I think, is say, well, I'm not going to hedge or, you know, flat is new short, right? You know, people have gotten burned Mm. so many times. And, you know, so I I think you have to be be aware uh, and you have to be diligent. And even then, you know, there's no bells at the top. There's nobody's going to tell you, hey, it's time to get out of the market. And anybody who tells you that they know what's going to happen is full of shit, right? Or trying to sell you something. Nobody knows, especially now, especially in a time where there's, you know, historically unprecedented financial maneuvering by central banks and how that's going to you know, settle is, is beyond anybody's knowledge. It's more of a speculative assumption. And, and you look at some of the smarter people, people who I consider to be smart, you know, they've been bearish for a long time and the market keeps going up. So I don't think anybody knows. I'm confident that nobody knows. If you try to assess risk, you need to assess risk based on, you know, a methodology that works for you. For me, that's been, you know, more concentrated positions that I can do more work on and just try to try to make hay when the sun shines and not, not get too greedy when the, when the tide turns. Okay, so let's come back to one of the topics that we brought up at the beginning of this conversation, 
which was around societal discontent, geopolitical factors. And I want to touch on something that you wrote about 2011, I think it was. And you were talking about that geopolitical conflicts essentially are born from religious differences and economic hardships at the same time. And so we're getting certainly in terms of economic hardships, we're seeing a lot of that playing out, especially in Europe, which is coupled with religious differences. So we're, we're seeing that now with the refugee crisis and these conflicts that are taking place within what are essentially secular societies that are um, you know, now at odds with, with an ideology that is, that is quite different to it. And you know, it's interesting because I watched Trump using that as well in his, um, in his political rhetoric, and it's resonating. It's, it's really striking a chord. I'm not making a judgment either way. I'm a market observer. I have no political inclination one way or the other. I'm purely a market observer looking to identify trends and, and participate um, and protect myself accordingly. But you made this comment that Tunisia was Fannie Mae and Egypt was Freddie Mac and Libya was AIG, Bahrain was Washovio Bank and so on and so forth. And that was, that was back in you know, 2011. And we've, we've gone a long way since then. And there's been things that have been taking place, which make a lot of those events look, you know, um, kind of like speed bumps um, in comparison to concrete barriers. So what are your thoughts on that sort of geopolitical environment today and how that impacts the markets? I mean, one of the things that I've discussed, as one could say as overvalued as the U.S. market may be, and even on the bond side, you could say that U.S. bonds, what's a 10-year at 1.55? You could say this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You're not getting paid a lot to take on essentially quite a bit of risk. At the same time, on a relative basis, if you look at, and this is a trade that I put on a few months back, was short Spanish debt, sovereign debt, which is negative, which in itself makes no sense. They don't even have a government. And then long US, because, you know, firstly, the euro is, in my mind, toast. So you've got a foreign exchange, synthetic short anyways, and then you've got the yield differential. And so that's, that's been contracted as a great trade. But the point, I guess, is that capital's global and it's fast, right? Gone are the days where, you know, it took a long time. Like you mentioned, that policy is slow and markets react in real time. And today they act in super real time because of the, the advent of technology. We can move capital in the blink of an eye, and we do. And so... But, there, but therein lies the arbitrage, right? It, it, you know, to talk in derivative speak, it's a theta arbitrage, right? It's a time value arbitrage. So when I had, you know, it's an unfortunate evolution. It's not something, you know, you, you know, hope you're right on. But what I had written back, you know, back then is sort of playing out, unfortunately, right? It, but it takes time, right? So, you know, you could really look, go back in time and look at, you know, from a contextual standpoint, and say, you know, the Federal Reserve went from defense to offense, you know, into Y2K and realized that the stock market's the world's biggest thermometer. And wow, you know, if I can get the market up, everybody's, you know, everybody's, you know, everything's funny when you're making money, right? As, as the saying goes. But I feel like that's been used as a tool throughout, you know, the last 15 years uh, as, a, as a tool to boost psychology, whether it was after 9-11 or into the first Iraq war, or I guess it was the second Iraq war in 2003. And these things have ramifications and, and you know, the ripple in the pond, so to speak, the vacuum created in the Middle East, uh, the secular uprising that was a manifestation of children who 
saw their bombs being blown up uh, on CNN. You know, they're, those children, those kids, they're adults now. And they're, they're, that's ISIS. That's, that's the, that's, they're pissed off at the world. And they have an ideology that in comparison to Western society, you know, that's the way they believe. And you can't change that. That's been going on for centuries, right? So no amount of artillery or drone strikes or whatever it is is going to change the ideology of, you know, a lot of people, right? Far be it for me to dictate foreign policy. I'm not saying that uh, we shouldn't have gone in. Uh, Who knows what would have happened if we didn't go in. But there are ramifications. There are unintended consequences. There are, you know, in many cases, a moral hazard, right? And I think that these are all cumulative in cause and effect. So while they're happening in the world, you know, the markets are looking at a zero interest rate environment or a negative interest rate environment and saying, hey, you know, stock's the only game in town. I'm going to dance while the music's playing. And that will go on until that psychology shift or that structural shift. I don't see how central banks pull out without impregnating a bear. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's one of those things I've been looking at it because I, I just wrote an article this morning I said I wrote it last night and published it this morning. And it was essentially I've been looking at sovereign bonds and gold. And the, the interesting thing, Todd, is that they're trading. Exact, that, that chart is a mirror. So I brought up the PIMCO 25-year zero coupon ETF. And you overlay that with gold and it's a mirror. And what it means essentially is that bonds are trading like a commodity, Right. And if you think about that, what it, what it is, because bonds are, bonds are yield-bearing instruments, typically, right? So you're buying it for yield. And what's happening now is nobody's buying it really for yield. They're buying it because they're going to flip it to somebody else for, more, for, for a greater price, especially in Europe. You know, if you're buying a negative, the, the German 10 years, at, you're losing 50 cents, right? And people are buying them. But they're buying them with the anticipation that they can flip it to somebody else who's going to lose a dollar. Right. It's a greater fool theory. I learned about this in college. And I also learned follow the smart money uh, in college. And, uh, and that, you know, the smart money is, has been bearish for some time now. So, yes, I, you know, one of the things that I've learned over the last 25 years in the market, but particularly in the last, you know, 10 or we'll call it five years, is that something's only worth what somebody else is willing to pay for it. You know, you could think that this or that has value, but at the end of the day, where you can sell it is what it is worth. And, you know, if you, if you believe that there's a marketplace, right, and, and there'll always be a marketplace, I think, I, think the free, I think free markets is a myth. It's been, there haven't been free markets, in my opinion, in a good decade, but there are still markets, right? There's still an opportunity to make money, to get in, to get out. But the important part, obviously, is making that sale. You know, you think back to, you know, Sir Isaac Newton during the tulip bubble, you know, he went broke. He, he bought it early. He sold it and then watched it go up without him and then bought it right back at the top and he got wiped out. I think that, you know, history rhymes, if not repeats. And, and, and that's going to that's going to that's going to happen. I, but, I don't in, so in that environment, do you, do you purely only buy things that have underlying tangible value and have cash flows? And I know, yeah, that, that's to a certain extent that's yield chasing, but you've got you've got an underpinning to something like that where if you have, if you take, for example, rental real estate, right? I don't know what the cap rates are over there, commercial, residential, but let's just take an arbitrary number and say, and look at commercial. And I've, the last I looked was just quite some time ago. I think they were around about three and a half percent 
yield and on the high side, maybe about 6%, depending on, on location. So in that environment, it's still positive. It's still a positive yield, although commercial lending is probably much, much higher than, um, than your bonds. But you could probably, you could probably at least break even on, on, um, on a trade like that. And then you've got an asset. So you may not be able to flip it to somebody else at a higher value, but over time, you've got these consistent cash flows that come in, which provide you with a certain level of stability. And if I contrast that to you know, diving into you know, equities that are priced to book of, I mean, the S&P the is priced to book of about three at the moment, priced to sales of two, which tells you something, and forward PEs are about 18. It's not cheap. That's the kind of average you'd go across certain companies. You know, it's, it's a whole lot worse. So then I think the downside is far more extreme. So I guess the question is, do you go into asset classes like, say, rental real estate? And this was a question that was put to me before. And you know, I'm too scared to do it. I, I look at it and I think, you know, we're probably at the tail end of a debt super cycle. Anything levered, you know, just kind of scares me, unless I've got a, a decent margin of error, and that would be yield. You know, my cap rates need to be double digits on, on class assets for me to take that kind of risk. What are your thoughts on, on, on an asset class like that, like commercial real estate? You know, I think it's all, uh, I'm not qualified to offer an opinion on that specific asset class, but I think, you know, as with everything, uh, you know, the, the hardest part about any investment is, is backing out the systemic risk, right? So ultimately, yes, you do want to have some underlying collateral, some sort of backstop to your investment, but that's you know, much easier said than done in this environment. But yeah, there are, you know, pockets of opportunity. You know, I'll use the cannabis industry, you know, even though the DEA recently ruled against reclassifying it, that's going to be a $100 billion industry, you know, by the next decade. Right now, it's mostly private equity. So it's, there's no real, I mean, there's a few stocks that are interesting, but there are opportunities, not always in the equity markets or in the, in the bond market. It's all, I think those are relative opportunities. But I think if you look at alternatives, if you look at uh, new, new and different industries that are emerging, that are entering into a growth phase, I think you're going you're gonna to see a, um, you know, a tailwind as opposed to a headwind. But again, you got to do your work. You know, for, for as long as I've been trading, more so the last, call it 15 years, nobody really cared what a company did. They just wanted to know the symbol and where it was going, if it was going up or down. Uh, you know, and that was just, that was, um, that's the, that was the nature of the beast, right? I mean, for but a I think that's, time, that's an extrapolation of a long-term bull market, right? People get lazier and lazier. And correct. so that's momentum. It's only when you really get punched in the face that you go, hang on a second, I got to pay a bit of attention here because that hurt. <laughs> well, yeah. And that's what Mike Tyson famously said. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. You know, the market hasn't gotten punched in the face in almost a decade. You know, it's been eight years. Mm-hmm. But again, for those who have been trading or who've been in the market for the last seven years, they don't know from a bear market. They don't know from a down tape. You know, in the last 25 years, I've, I've, I've traded through a fair amount of financial crises. And almost to a point, each one of them characterized by, uh, you know, the cycle of denial, migration, and panic, right? All three of those things. And usually when there's panic, that's when you want to go the other way and, and there's denial going back the other way. But it's very hard to, to catch those cusps. I used to say when trading, you, know, you make your money between the 20s, right? So you don't need to 
trade in the play in the red zone during the cusps either way. But again, different strokes for different folks. Not everybody has the time or the inclination to do the work. And as you said, and, you know, it's become a lazy man's market that, you know, that goes up year after year. You know, I don't know what the exit strategy of the Fed is. I don't think, what, I don't think they know what the exit strategy is. <laughs> I don't uh, think they have one. There isn't one. I mean, uh, the math is math. So they can't raise rates because if you look at the, the enormous amount of debt, it, it, does, it no longer becomes an issue of repaying debt, which we know is not going to happen. It just becomes a pure factor that they cannot service the debt. Well, the question becomes, and I'm not, again, I'm not, uh, this is not my ballywick per se, you know, whether they can retire that debt and move on without, you know, really nary a burp, uh, so to speak. I don't know. I, you know, I, I talk to a lot of smart people and they don't know. You know, this is really uncharted waters. And I think, that, you know, for me to sit here and tell you the market's going up or the market's going down is, you know, disingenuous because I don't know. So I'm just trying to find good companies that I can, you know, be disciplined in my approach to. and you know what? I'm not always disciplined, right? It's easy to get caught up in the, you know, in, it's easy to get caught up in the, in the world when the world's going one way. But when that world shifts, you have to be aware and you have to take action. Hope is not a viable investment vehicle. So you made an interesting comment just a little bit before, and I want to go back to that as a, as a last topic, because I had, a, I had a conversation yesterday with a gentleman who is in that space of not necessarily cannabis, but hemp, right? And we would, I was being educated on the, medicinal attributes of the sort of non-psychogenic um, attributes that are within the hemp plant. And one of the things that we were discussing was this demographic shift, right, that which, which we have. We know that the, the baby boomers are all sort of retiring. And I, you know, that's a big focus and a big trend that I'm watching and looking for opportunities in. Consumption is going to change. We're already seeing that, you know, uh, there's not as many people buying microwave ovens and, you know, washing machines and so on and so forth. And certainly healthcare, retirement uh, facility, things of that nature make a lot of sense to me. So it was, in, it was fascinating to get his take on, on the medicinal products that you know, basically exist. We know that they exist, but some of them have been outlawed due to the, um, the nature of the initial plant, cannabis. Correct. So, well, if I can interject, one of my, you know, uh, I don't like to talk individual stocks, but my, one of my biggest positions now is, is a, a GW Pharmaceuticals, right? Uh, so I've been, <laughs> I've been very cognizant of political environment as, as it pertains to marijuana. I thought it was very interesting when the DEA came out. I read that press release a dozen times. And it was interesting to me that if you, listen, if you really read between the lines, what they were saying is that there's no medical benefits uh, as dictated by the FDA. So therefore, they can't reclassify it from a class one to a class two. But what that does is, you know, in effect, it shifts the political liability from the DEA to the FDA, right? So once the FDA comes out and says that there is benefit to, and I'm looking more at the cannabinoids, the CBD, as opposed to the THC. So not the part that gets you high, but there's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a really an amazing plant, right? If you really go down into the, into the deep dive into the... Uh, what they can do with this, you know, with cannabis, it's really quite amazing, right? But the DEA is not going to rule. It's a drug enforcement agency, right? So when the FDA shifts their stance, and I think that's a matter of time, I think that 
you're going to see data that supports the notion that CBD cannabinoids reduce childhood epilepsy, for instance, right? As that's proven through, and that's a very, you know, that's a very socially defensible position, right? Yeah. Uh, pricing is, is the bear case, right? But you can't raise, the pricing is a whole nother ball of wax. But from, from a socially defensible standpoint, you could argue that this is a very positive evolution in, you know, innovation, right? In, in the drug world. So I think the FDA has to act first. The DEA will be in response to that and they'll, you know, politically cover their ass. But the other side of that trade, and you've seen Hillary kind of stand on a soapbox as, you know, with regard to myelin and the EpiPens, you know, it's great to approve a drug for, uh, that serves a critical need. But when you try to profit from that drug, the, you know, you're in a very, you know, much like I would yeah. say, were uh, in 2008, 2009, I think big pharma or biotechs, that, that is the bear case, right? That's my big, that's the thing that keeps me up at night is there's going to be all this political pressure to lower the cost of drugs that are necessary for children's epilepsy, for EpiPens, whatever it is, that is politically a goldmine, right? It's you know, if you think about oil, oil has always been a political commodity, which is why I've found it difficult I found it difficult to discount it. Right? How do you how do you actually discount political the political side of oil? It's very, very difficult. And then you come back to the demographics we just talked about. You're gonna have tens of millions of people that are entering this retirement space, needing pain drugs, and here's a solution. We know it's a solution, it's it's been utilized for centuries. Does it mean that pharmaceuticals in particular land up being like a political commodity like oil? I think well I think it already is unfortunately you know you think you talk, you talk about demographics I, I think that's a really important uh, topic you know on, on a few fronts but you know the millennials are catching so much shit for being dis, uh, disenfranchised but what do you expect you know look at the world that they're coming into you know this is a function of the of the actions that from 15, 20 years ago, uh, or 10 years ago even. It's a manifestation, but it's a cumulative manifestation. So, you know, when you look at something like pharmaceuticals, the political appetite for, you know, to bash pharmaceuticals for a price gouging, you know, that's a goldmine. The same as it was to bash the banks in 2008 during the financial crisis. Very you know, easy to do. Acceptable casualty of war. So somewhere along the line in the last 15 years, speculation became a four-letter word. Profiting became sort of a, a four-letter word. And nobody wants to know from it until they need to do it themselves. You know, so this is, it's become a very political you know, industry, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on where you sit as a card-carrying free market capitalist, I'm, you know, I'm not happy with the way the world has evolved over the last 15 years, all-time highs notwithstanding, but you got you to gotta play the hand you've been dealt, not the hand you want. No true words have been said. Well, Todd, it's been a fascinating conversation, and uh, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, I, I, I listen. I don't, I don't do this much anymore. You know, probably, probably a good thing in this environment, <laughs> but you know, I do think that education and awareness is probably more important now, uh, as important as it ever was. So I think that folks need to really pay attention to what's going on. And that's not to say the market can't go higher, but the DNA of this market is very different than the DNA of our father's market. Couldn't agree more. Well, until next time, mate. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You take care now. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to 